0: Fearscape Paranormal Podcast, part of the Fearscape Media Network. Prepare to be spooked. (laughs) New episodes every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Find out more at fearscapepodcast.com.
1: There is no question that something is here, lurking, somewhere in the darkened corners. But how will we ever find out what it is? We need to look, always, and never stop. No matter what stands in our way. No matter what others may think. Explore the darkness. Shine light into it. Join the red strings and the silver threads. Everything is connected. Somehow. I am Mark L. Watson. This is Peer Beyond the Veil.
0: I was literally five years old in kindergarten, and uh, I had been exposed, of course, to the beginnings of learning English. And uh, the most interesting book that they had given me at that point was called Mike, Mary, and Jeff. Many readers probably remember this. You know, it's just grade school primers on English. And when I began, I think at about age five, to realize that, you know, you can read and you can read stories, and, you know, these you know the english language what we speak and its written equivalent can convey knowledge uh, immediately i went to my parents and said the stories you tell around the campfire those are the kinds of books i want to read and they said well you know you're a little too young for that you know that you're going to need a few years before you can do all that but they were kind enough to allow me to destroy several of their books because as a kid you know how it is i take them out I take them outside leave them outside in the rain and I wish I had it in the room right here right now so I could show you. It's over there in the other uh, room. But uh, I've still got my copy of Ivan T. Sanderson's Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, that they gave me at about age five or six after me persistently nagging dad. So he donated that copy from the Hanks Library, and I still have it. It, you I know, completely lost the cover a few years ago. And, I mean, the pages are curled and rumpled. It looks like something that you'd find either – you know, in the throwaway bin behind a used bookstore, or maybe in some cave, you know, an Indiana Jones type discovery. So I love it. I keep it. And I still, and I still, yeah. And I reread that book. I I do. But as far as when it became a a thing, you know, again, I, I made it through school, graduated from high school, took one year off before I went into college with the intention of studying psychology. So I could apply that to parapsychology. That was the nearest to, you know, the, the kind of vocation I thought I might be able to find where I could uh, take my interests and go in an academic direction with it. And, um, you know, around that time, I had an opportunity to start working over the weekends as a board op, a button pusher in radio. And so I thought, well, you know, education is important, but I may not get this opportunity again. I can always go back to school. And so I dropped out of college and went to work in radio. And uh, one thing led to another. I would be sitting there in the evenings, uh, you know, board opping football games. And I'd be writing articles i just thought you know i'd love to do what keel and these guys did and so i just started submitting articles to magazines like uh, fate magazine of course the long-running famous magazine in the united states long-time hub for ufo reporting and other things started submitting articles and uh, it really kind of began from there and um that's the great thing about working nights in radio when you're bored hopping uh you know you you might have to jump on there once per hour you're listening to and you know let them know what (laughs) what your alma mater is but um, then you'll have an hour of listening to the ball game going on and, you know, potting up commercials every now and then. So I'd work on articles. And then I decided to start building a blog and it was just pursuing an interest. But with time, then people start writing to you and saying, hey, would you contribute to this journal? Hey, would you want to do an article for our magazine? And I just continued to do what I loved. Uh, and then also with radio, uh, I had an opportunity to begin to uh, produce a Saturday night radio show. Uh, about the unexplained and again i was just in heaven because i'm thinking oh great this is yet again just something i enjoy doing you don't really think at least for me i never did that this is going to be what i'll do for the rest of my life but i'm sure now i will
1: (laughs) emerging from the work of francis bacon and the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries the age of enlightenment or the age of reason as it may otherwise be known swept europe and reshaped ideas and concepts as it went Scientists, mathematicians, philosophers and politicians began to circulate new ideas such as empiricism, liberty and the separation of the church from the state. They met together at Masonic halls and lodges, academic study groups and even tea houses and soon began to publish written works and journals that spread the ideas beyond their exclusive circles. The ideas that were brought forth to those tables led to a gulf between the previous religious dogma that was regarded as the only approach, and into one of reason that led to an exploration of the senses, mind and consciousness, and the role that such things play on the lives of the people and the world as a whole. Minds began to open to that which lies outside of our perceived reality, beyond what explanations are offered in our religious texts. And so came the advent of paranormal research. As research groups and organisations sprang up across the continent and into the New World, the great library of such study began to amass on the dusty shelves, each ruffled old page taking us one tiny step closer to a perceived truth, a new enlightenment. A greater understanding of what our place is in the world and beyond, and what is truly going on inside the greatest enigma known to mankind, our own minds. As we moved into the 20th century, our minds were as open to such notions of extraterrestrial existence, post-mortal existence, and telepathic ability as they had ever been before. Individuals such as Charles Fort paved the way for the writings of Keele, Barker and Mosley, von Däniken and Vallee. And then, quite recently, the medium changed and ideas were able to be broadcast internationally at the simple push of a button. And so today's researchers, while still writing incredible books, have turned to their own voices and the wonder of the internet to broadcast and to connect with one another in an instant. Such is the case with my guest tonight. Described by my fellow paranormal countryman Nick Redfern as one of those individuals at the forefront of skilfully negotiating the dark water that will ultimately provide us with the answers we seek, he has secured his place at the council fire of today's true greats. With numerous books and, quite incredibly, numerous active podcasts to his name, Micah Hanks joins us tonight to tell us what it is that keeps making him want to peer beyond the veil
0: i used to always think of uh, ian fleming talking about his best known character james bond 007 and he uh he had said that bond was this really ordinary guy that extraordinary things happened to and so i certainly was never as extraordinary as uh, you know the famed secret agent uh but nonetheless, I was able to relate to that being a really ordinary guy who never had those experiences himself. And therefore, I was more drawn to the incredible experiences that others had had. But I remember a few years ago, I'd been talking with a friend of mine, Mike Cleland, you probably are familiar with Mike and his work and his two volume work on the messengers. Mike has done, I think, uh, incredible, very deeply introspective work with regard to owls, and their symbolism, and also how some of that relates to Uh, archetypes, the UFO phenomenon, what have you. Uh, Mike was right here with me in the studio. He came to visit Asheville a couple of times and I love anytime I get to sit down and talk with Mike and we had been talking and he said, you ever had anything weird happen? And I said, no, no, never myself. But later in the conversation, we start talking about synchronicity. And I said, you know, I have that happen all the time. And he said, wait, hold on. You said you'd never had any weird experiences yourself and yet you've had synchronicity happen all the time. How's that not a weird experience? And so the moment for me there was, you know, realizing, well, how do you define a, a unique experience? You know, how Re-frame do you frame
1: define... the definition? Yeah, sure.
0: And it was really that moment, you know, I think where I began to say, you know, maybe some things that I would deem rather ordinary, others would call something else. And you know, since that time, I've had the most extraordinary, interesting kinds of things I've had happen in this regard, uh, with regard to this sort of work. Would be, I would say, what you would call, for lack of a better term, parapsychological. Uh, you know, premonitory visions, um, getting a strong impression about an individual before they call. Uh, And it had begun to happen a few years ago, enough to the point where my dear friend Tiffany Mack and I had decided to begin keeping a log of experiences either that we had that might have something to do with something we were talking about, or even just independent experiences, like a dream she'd had, she would tell me about, uh, and I would write it down. And, um, that took me into looking at psychological and parapsychological literature that again accounts for so many of the similar kinds of things from over the years. It's almost impossible to ignore the idea that there must be some element, some sort of faculties of the mind that we don't understand completely.
1: Sure. You in 2013, so seven years ago, wrote the foreword for um, for David Weatherly's great book, Strange Intruders, um, where, you, you, where you wrote, um, let me quote, you have experienced inexplicable instances, you wrote, where information was presented to you by those who maybe couldn't have otherwise known it, and that to you um, had had proved clearly remarkable enough to, to write in that foreword. Um, what of this this almost Keelian theory of the more you involve yourself, the more you look into a void, the more it looks back, the more you involve yourself into a subject, the more it presents itself to you um so if you can maybe elaborate on 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 maybe what you meant a little bit in in that foreword by the inexplicable instances and 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 how maybe those things have started to show over the years where you have noticed the void looking back
0: yeah yeah it's uh really paraphrasing nietzsche a little there you know with the idea of looking into the void. I've always enjoyed Nietzsche's philosophy and really a lot of other philosophers too, whether or not they were necessarily as sympathetic toward the idea of the unexplained. But uh, now with Kiel, well, first let me say uh, the experiences that I have had that are the closest I could liken to anything unusual myself have involved what I would class in parapsychological terms. And occasionally that involves others' experiences with the same sort of thing, uh, you know, so so that would be in a roundabout way what I'm discussing there, but with regard to how Kiel, um, you know, had this experience of going into the, you know, the practice of, you know, reporting and and chronicling the unusual, and it seeming to become more and more prevalent in his life, Keel always interested me because he seemed like the classic Western skeptic, and his earliest book had not been geared toward UFOs or anything unexplained right. whatsoever. You know, Keel, I guess, had written for newspapers at this time, but as a young man, he travels to the East. He goes and travels throughout, you know, the Middle East and up into uh, uh, the uh, Himalayan mountain range, actually, I believe he met Tenzing Norgay while he was there. But anyway, he chronicles chronicles this experience, this adventure of several weeks traveling, um, often with very little money except for what his publishers back in uh, New York would send him or wire to him. Uh, Kiel had uh, these experiences in pursuit of trying to understand magic. And so the book, the term that he used for this was an Eastern term, jadu. It's a wonderful book, I've recommended it to many friends over the years, uh, and it was first given to me, a gifted copy by Patrick Wiege of Anomalous Books when he republished it, and I wrote a, a nice review of the book, I mean, I sincerely enjoyed it. But in that early book, it was interesting to me because here's a guy, Kiel, who was so well-known, best known for being this you know writer on the anomalous. But when he started out, he had really been kind of this skeptical guy who went to the, to the East and thought, I'm gonna figure out the infamous rope trick which, as it was described to him, involved a guy who would throw a rope up into the air and it would, you know, one end would stay, and then he would crawl up the rope and sometimes send an assistant up the rope. And it was quite a uh spectacle, an, an incredible magic trick. And so Keel thought, I'm gonna figure out how you do that. And I'm gonna explain magic. I'm gonna, you know, demystify the mysticism. Along the way, and so he goes, and he does eventually figure out the rope trick. But while he is in the east, he begins to get this impression that, you know, there is the the, the conjurer's tricks, the illusionist's art, and then there is the actual unexplained. And so it sort of culminates in him meeting with this, uh, you know, a kind of a yogi or a, you know, a, a wise man for lack of a better term, who kind of says to him, he has this dialogue with him. Kiel is told to go up there and meet this man. And when Kiel gets there, the man is blind, but he somehow knows that it's Kiel who has arrived and somehow had expected Kiel to be there, even though he presumably wouldn't have known that Kiel was coming. And so Kiel sits and he talks with this man who at one point says to him in response to his inherent skepticism about those things unexplained, he says, "Shri Keel." half the world is blinded by skepticism. And Keel kind of goes, huh, okay. And so he continues his travels and he makes his way to the Himalayas. And at that point, he actually believes he is possibly being stalked by or or moving in close proximity to an unidentified uh, animal species, a Yeti essentially. And so he has this close encounter almost with what he believes might have been an an abominable snowman, comes back to the United States, writes this book about these experiences and evidently was quite changed from having been and immersed himself in other cultures and learned that, well, you know, the Western worldview maybe isn't the only one. And maybe it's not the only relevant one. Maybe, in fact, it's not the most accurate one in terms of perception of reality. And so, yeah, Keel. I think that was really a launching point for him. And the more he got into all of this, again, the deeper his involvement became. He starts with Jadu, and of course, he writes great books like The Mothman Prophecies, where he's still very much a reporter at that point. And then eventually, this kind of takes him in this direction where with regard to the UFO phenomenon, uh, by the time he's publishing books like Operation Trojan Horse and The Eighth Tower, Kiel comes over from being a quote-unquote ufologist to being almost like a demonologist. And, you know, by some measures, his approach to the phenomenon was thinking outside the box and revolutionary at best. By other standards, some would say he was way too far off base and it was entirely too speculative to be relevant to the modern discussion and dialogue that we're seeing on UAP. I think that Keel's somewhere in the middle. He obviously had imagination, but I think that you know, free thinking, new thinking, out-of-the-box thinking should be allowed. And sometimes when done properly and with, you know, a certain amount of caution, it can actually be in itself very advantageous. And I think that Keel was that kind of person. But again, the point I like to drive home is that that, that progression of thought for Keel, like with many others, was rooted in experience. And he had begun much more skeptical. The more he became involved, you know, the more what he pursued seemed to involve itself with him.
1: So following that Keelian thread, so to speak, your first book, published in 2010, the first edition, a revised second edition 2017, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, can you tell us a little bit about how that ties in?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess with an interest in guys like John Keel, some might say that that book would have been a natural place for me to begin. Although I think when I wrote that book, I don't think uh, I had read Jadu yet. I'd have to go back and check. Uh, You know, again, this was my first book. Um, It was born out of really an interest in the writings of a lot of the, really, I I guess it was consciousness researchers primarily, um, but many of them dabblers in, uh, you know, hallucinogens, psychedelics, things along these lines. Now, what really makes this interesting or perhaps less interesting for some people Uh, is the fact that I'm not a user. I have never been a user of, you know, psychotropic substances, anything like that, hallucinogens, not to say that I'm against their use, uh, nor am I against the idea of at some point doing that myself. But, you know, for various reasons, it's just never been something that I've pursued. Uh, And writing a book about it was, uh, it was intentional for me not to how would you say this? Become a guy who goes, takes drugs, and tells everybody about all the weird things, the elves and UFOs that he's seen. You know, I wanted to report on the state of uh, science as it relates to that, as well as, you know, mystical literature and things like that. Uh, and it became apparent to me that much of what the modern consciousness researchers, to give a couple of examples, I mean, a, a big one in my book is uh, Richard Strassman, MD who had actually conducted in the 1990s a DEA-approved study with uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, uh, at Arizona State University, I believe. And again, this was geared toward studying the effects of what he thought was, uh, again, he termed it the spirit molecule. He was trying to find out what might be the root of certain, what he terms endogenous mystical experiences that people have had. For instance, if a person meditates to a point that they essentially induce an altered state of consciousness, some people have described almost kaleidoscopic psychedelic effects, very similar to what, for instance, someone who has taken ayahuasca or something along the lines of, uh, you know, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, might experience. Now, granted, it's not to say everybody who learns how to meditate properly will have visions. That's that's not the case. It's obviously not the kind of thing that happens often. It's the fact that in rare cases, very rare cases, he had found people who claimed to have had experiences very similar to that which could be induced in the laboratory under these controlled circumstances with controlled doses of DMT. And so he was trying to understand, is there a faculty within the body that might allow for that? And, uh, and that was the, the the main thrust of the study. Interestingly, of course, I'd begun to read other writers uh, on these subjects, Daniel Pinchbeck, who had written a fantastic and very adventurous book uh, a few years ago called Breaking Open the Head, you know, Pinchbeck uh, was another guy uh, who, you know, very much in that tradition of Strassman, but again, someone who himself goes and takes all of these substances, records his own experiences as well as those of others. But some of the things that you begin to see are incredibly interesting uh, to me because A, the induced mystical experience, whatever pathway one takes to achieve it or to, you know, to to get to that state, uh, sometimes features what we might class as uh, psycho, well, I guess we'll, we'll call it parapsychological phenomena, uh, you know, premonitory experiences, um, experiences where someone has the capability of, of, you know, having an awareness of information, uh, which they would not have had ex- you know, direct exposure to. They wouldn't have had any kind of stimuli that should have imparted that knowledge. Uh, and nonetheless, they actually come to know it. They have visionary experiences and things that often tell them about themselves or loved ones, This was particularly the case with ayahuasca. And since having written the book, I've been told even more incredible stories with regard to people's experiences taking ayahuasca that are even suggestive of the idea of consciousness um, existing and persisting after death. So these kinds of things really interested me. You also add to that the fact that at least maybe 20% of the people who in Strassman's study uh, had this chemically induced visionary experience with DMT in the laboratory, They described experiences that are remarkably similar. In fact, I don't think that there's any way you can really um, deny the similarity to the classic alien abduction experience. Uh, Some of the descriptions of the beings that people in a, again, a very controlled, medically induced hallucinogenic experience, so we know exactly what factors are contributing to what causes the visionary experience. But again, what they see is remarkably similar to things that people who presumably have not taken any kind of drugs or had any other kind of uh, an induced experience, they're nonetheless describing similar things. And of course, we find this in the abduction literature from primarily the 19, maybe the late 70s, but really rises to prominence in the 80s and 90s, following the publication of Whitley Strieber's Communion and Bud Hopkins' book, Intruders. So, you know, there, there was definitely continuity there. And I think a lot of people might see my own book and, and certain other consciousness researchers who have looked at this idea and they, they might say, Oh, I see you're trying to explain UFO abduction experiences as something that's happening in the mind. Yes. And no, uh, I don't know that we can necessarily, I don't think we even have to try and explain away the UFO experience. I'm merely trying to understand the commonality between those experiences, but it, Whitley Strieber has always been someone who fascinates me because I have often said, I don't know if, the experiences that he had, which were very real to him, were would have been as real maybe marked to you or to me, sure. right? But they were real to him. Now, the the modern, you know, very skeptically inclined materialist thinker would say, well, therefore, they were imaginary. You know, I don't know that that's necessarily the closest approximation of truth. Whitley, you go back and you look at the interviews, shortly after the publication of Communion, uh, back then he was, if anything, much more hesitant And maybe that was in keeping with the times somewhat, but he was much more hesitant to actually say these experiences involved occupants of UFO craft. He said, I don't know what they are. Uh, It would be fair to say that they are alien, but I don't know that that means extraterrestrial. The experiences were real to me and they they seemed very real. So again, he actually terms it very much the same way that I perceive it. And I, you know, again, I think it's an admirable position that he takes. It's not wishy-washy to say, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the physical nature of this was. I just know that I had these experiences and that experience was real to me. And that kind of discussion of those experiences, the way that he terms it, I mean, it is very reminiscent of the kinds of you know psychedelic experiences that involve very similar circumstances. But now, as far as the title of the book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, We could begin with the modern consciousness researchers and inducing an altered state of consciousness in order to try and have a similar experience. And there's a chapter in the book that's actually uh, almost as fascinating to me as the consciousness component itself, which looks at uh, survivors of, of, you know, circumstances, which we would class as near-death experiences. And I don't mean that in the traditional sense of the term coined by uh, Raymond Moody, MD, who I got to meet, and that's discussed in the book, you know, When Moody was talking about a near-death experience, what we generally all think of is a person almost dying and they see a tunnel and a light and maybe a loved one comes down. Uh, Again, in the very bare bones sense of things, a near-death experience, like I'm discussing in the chapter we reference here, would involve a person maybe who was kidnapped by a cartel and they are tied up and blindfolded and they are being burned with cigarettes. And this induces an altered state of consciousness because this person is in a hyper-aware Survival state. Many people in these kinds of near death experiences, where they are in a car accident or they think that they're going to die, they're being held hostage, they're locked in a prison cell somewhere and tortured, they have out of body experiences. Some of them actually describe UFO like encounters. So, yet again, I mean, what are the varieties of stimuli that affect human beings that can induce these? communicative experiences where they perceive not only an altered state of consciousness. It would be one thing for me to see a big bright light and feel real happy and go, wow. But in many of these experiences, people also say there are others, there are entities that are communicating. So what are these? Are these archetypes? Is this entirely within the mind? Or on that outside chance that there could be something more to it? Is there actually a form of Communion, to borrow Whitley's term for it, a kind of communication that is actually occurring there. Now,
1: again, the skeptic in the. But a type of communication which is occurring there in a, in inverted commas, real sense, in that it is not purely fabricated by the mind, but it exists in the mind, and the mind is a vehicle for the communication. So there right. might still be an external entity, for one of a better phrase, an external communicator communicating with you, but only on that psychological level. And therefore, it is only ever a subjective experience, but it doesn't mean that you're fabricating that purely from your own imagination. Correct.
0: It is is real to you. And again, with the mysticism and the magic portions of the book, it's the same mystical experiences that often have nothing to do. They may have to do with ecstatic body postures and meditation, but they typically don't have that kind of shortcut that's provided through psychedelics. Um, And then, of course, throughout time, ritual practices, magic, for lack of a better term, seem to often be aimed at achieving similar things. In the ancient world, magic was introduced because we didn't have a full understanding of the scientific mechanics of the world around us. And if we wanted to pray to a god that controlled the crops, and we wanted to appease that god, that might ensure that we would all be able to eat until this fall, and maybe, if we're lucky, survive through the winter. So, you know, anthropologically, we can understand where magic comes from, but over time, it's interesting because you you see that again. Characters like uh, John Dee, fascinating individual, one of the most scientifically literate men of his era, but nonetheless very much the consummate occultist. Uh, you know, and others were like that too. Newton was also uh, much more occult uh, oriented with his thinking, again being a product of his times, than the modern scientist would want you to think and and have you believe. Now, does that mean that that's a right way to think? Again, that's anybody's guess, but I'm fascinated by the fact that even until fairly recent times, you know, on the, uh, you know, toward the end of the middle ages, the early enlightenment, you still had people who were very much into the Enlight- enlightenment who were uh, exploring avenues that the modern consciousness researcher is still interested in. They may have perceived the root of the phenomena differently. You know, John Dee believed in this idea of Enochian angels and that communication with them would, you know, essentially unite heaven and earth and bring about this sort of paradise. Uh, Newton, on the other hand, much more scientifically inclined, but still had, you know, occult uh, interests kind of behind the scenes, uh, maybe even more so than the Christian dogma that again, you had to sort of be a part of uh, in that era as a professor. Um, at his institution, that was actually requisite uh, in his day. But again, so the lineage throughout time of magical or ritual practices, mystical practices, and then modern consciousness research often are aimed at trying to reach similar ends, even as, you know, thought progresses and our attitudes toward what we're looking for change over time. But it's a fascinating kind of deep dive. And that's essentially, (laughs) that's the short answer, believe it or not, about what that book is uh, essentially about
1: yeah you know, i've discussed I've discussed before with people and and even on this show how the perception of of what religion is and and some of the stories behind it have the names and titles associated with such things that actually in a modern context could actually be perceived as as paranormal experiences or or certainly occultism it's just that they were given different titles at the time or they're given different titles now um, and I actually have a close friend who who is of Christian belief, who I've spoken to in the past about my lack of belief. And actually recently I've had to, to almost reverse my decision to him and say that while I, I would not class myself particularly as a Christian, though of course I believe in, in many of the, the teachings, that actually it is possible that with my paranormal beliefs, that I do indeed believe in Christianity or in religion. It's just that I give those things that he calls Christianity and he calls his religion, I give them different names, though they could possibly all be the same thing. So I may be very religious, in a sense.
0: You know, it's funny, this has come up so many times in conversations I've had recently, I have to quote my friend uh, Dr. David Halperin, you know, a Jewish studies prof- professor, and of course he has also written a book more recently on UFOs, which is called Intimate Alien, and it's a challenging uh, and an exceptionally fun read. Um, although I think that the nuts and bolts UFO researcher won't necessarily agree with the premises, which is why I encourage people to read it, uh, because uh, Dr. Halperin really gives us a different perspective. Being a religious studies professor, he sees UFO experiences as being indistinguishable from the classical tradition, you know, going back since antiquity really to time immemorial of the religious vision. And I think that uh, to his point, some modern UFO uh, experiences certainly are essentially, even if the person having the experience does not see it as such, I think that they are essentially religious experiences. But um, I, I would hesitate to say that it works the other way in the sense that we can look back through time. And I think David would agree. I don't think we can look back through time at all of the religious experiences that people have had since, you know, the beginning of human thought, you know, springing into consciousness. And we, you know, re- reflect on ourselves and our thoughts and become conscious beings. I can't think that it's the same that every experience of a religious kind, Ezekiel's wheel what or what have you, that those are all actually UFOs. Now, where I would differ with dear Dr. Halperin, though, and he knows this, you know, but again, scholars and professionals should be able to disagree more often and still reflect on one another's work and be challenged by it. And and it should be able to teach them things about themselves in the way that they think about phenomena that we study. Where I would differ with Dr. Halperin uh, is that all modern UFOs, cases can be explained as religious visions. I certainly think that the UFO experience is very similar to the tradition of religious experiences. I think that the person who sees a modern technical nuts and bolts craft that for all we know could be from outer space may see that and still have a religious vision. As Halperin would point out, you'll often see people who've seen a UFO and they're frightened by it and they start praying or they may say that I started having religious thoughts after the experience because it really caused me to wonder about reality and whether we're alone in the universe and, you know, what the implications of that would mean for my maybe existing religious beliefs. I mean, more often than people are aware of or would think there is this sort of continuity between the religious, you know, tendencies and the UFO experience. But at the end of the day, I I hold out hope that some ufos do represent a actual tangible phenomena but i understand that humans throughout time have required religion for various reasons that's something we don't have to get into right now but the the vestiges of that requirement that we have uh for social reasons uh and for other reasons those those things come out when we experience something that we can't identify and so uh, you can't accept you can't really remove the ufo idea from the tradition of religious and mystical experiences no.
1: It would also say that um, this this purely conscious based subjectivity, um, subjective aspect of something like UAP wouldn't be explained by being caught on the gum camera of a fighter jet, for right. example. So,
0: well, you know, exa- times again, are always changing. Times are changing. And again, with further review and further expansion of our knowledge base, we can sometimes look back. You know, this is something that you've touched on. We can look back and we can sometimes hope to explain things we once didn't understand. But, you know, I guess it would be important for me to include this quote I was thinking of from Dr. Halpern, which ties all of this together. Again, he would say of the UFO, UFOs are a myth, in his view. UFOs are a myth, but myths are real. And again, to your point about religion and, you know, belief versus, uh, you know, and, and really this all very being contingent very much on the eye of the beholder, Again, a myth may not exist in the physical sense, but as an idea, as a concept, as something that we recognize, the myth is very real, right? And something can both be a myth and I think at the same time be very real. And I would extend that to all the consciousness studies that we were discussing earlier as well. Again, that experience may not be real for every person, but for the individual who is experiencing it, that myth or otherwise is very real.
1: Micah is, and it's hard to argue against, one of the hardest working men in podcasting. I can vouch first hand for the amount of work that goes into researching, writing, scheduling, presenting, editing, producing, marketing a show. And there's more behind the scenes too. We here at Peer Beyond the Veil produce merely this humble show and the notion of not only putting the amount of work needed back into two shows, but to present at such a high quality is very impressive. Micah successfully and skillfully manages four podcasts. Such a portfolio of incredible creative output is very commendable and should be applauded and recognized as indeed it is. Micah's flagship show, The Micah Hanks Programme, focuses on science and the mysteries of our universe, both diving deep and skimming the surface of all things weird, wonderful, and outright strange. Middle theory is Micah's news and current affairs output, presenting from a largely centrist perspective. And the Seven Ages Audio Journal documents the work of the Seven Ages Research Associates, a group of independent scholars of which Micah is, of course, a member, and presents content on the subjects of archaeology, history, and ancient culture. Earlier this year, another addition joined the already golden portfolio, Sasquatch Tracks. The show examines the enduring question of whether there could be an as-yet undiscovered species living in our world with greater focus on the Sasquatch of North America, but also examining reports of a relic hominoid from around the world. Critically-minded and science-based, Whilst remaining open, as it should, to the possibility of potential other explanations, the show has gathered some of the world's best minds and researchers on the subject from a wide range of backgrounds to shed just a little light on what is hiding in the woodlands.
0: My uh, cohorts, again, I think it's fair to call them a dream team, they're wonderful guys. Uh, Dakota Waddell is a longtime friend of mine who, when we were in our teens, we would go to... I mean, he was... Still in high school, I think, and on a Saturday morning, we would jump in one of our cars. He was driving what we called the Danger Ranger at that point, and I had a pickup truck. But we would go to used bookstores and, you know, look for books about, you know, topics like Sasquatch and things. We just loved all that. And I think he had just graduated from high school. The first time that he, I, and another friend traveled up to Newcomerstown, Ohio, and went to a conference to talk about the way we didn't talk; we were just attending. But we went to this uh, Sasquatch conference there. And um so for many years we have maintained an interest in this, but life happens. We never are what we were we were never one of those uh, you know, friendships that fell out of touch and comes back together. He and I've remained you know, frequently in touch for years because we've performed music uh professionally for years in, in different bands. And so we have spent many long hours, uh, you know, weeks at a time on the road traveling, you know, performing acoustic music, country, you know. And uh, performing at weddings, events, all kinds of things. So, uh, we had had the idea a long time ago that we should have a a side project so that all we do isn't just playing music. And we wanted to do a podcast and uh, going through many iterations and finally coming back around. Sasquatch Tracks is what came out of all this. But with the addition of a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Smith, who Dakota Interest or, or he introduced me to. Uh, Dakota is now a uh, he has a degree in geomatics. And so what that means is he is a land surveyor. And uh, with with particular interest in topography, and uh, also uh, GIS technologies. And uh, so Dakota and Jeff met in the geomatics program, going to school here in North Carolina. And I had uh, he had kept telling me that you get you got to meet this guy, Jeff retired US Air Force, uh, you know, co pilot and a navigator, Uh, with more than a 1000 hours, you know, just a fascinating guy. Now he's doing uh, the uh, land surveying thing with me. And I said, Well, you know, there's a long history of land surveyors being involved in Sasquatch research, Um, that going back to the 1800s. And so again, that's something else we can talk about. But those guys uh, jumped behind the mic with me, and we finally launched this podcast, which is geared entirely toward, uh, you know, again, kind of riding that fence, we try to be a little more skeptical than most podcasts. And we certainly are not one of the shows where Uh, You know, we just have people come on and tell stories. We speak with scientists. We also talk with filmmakers and researchers, authors, but mostly we are talking with scientists or we are talking to citizen scientists. And we are trying to apply that idea, citizen science toward the idea of a, as yet unrecognized bipedal anthropoid ape species reported to exist in North America, not to mention other parts of the world.
1: You spoke with the fantastically talented uh, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. That was a a two-part interview there over over two episodes. And his conclusion to it is that Sasquatch, certainly the North American Sasquatch, is a, as yet, unidentified, but very much biological creature. And that all talk of extraterrestrialism and, and... spiritualism plays no part in his existence now that that is also how how I would see it as, that also strikes me as as you, being your line of thought correct me if I'm wrong there
0: yeah it is it is my line of thought uh, I think a lot of folks knowing my interest in UFOs because you know again I, I take that subject very seriously and uh, to the point that I actually I've never been a member of any organizations at least in you know since I was maybe in my early 20s, uh, but I recently threw my head into the ring and joined uh, a group called the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, uh, because, as the name says, I feel that this is something it's incumbent upon us to apply science toward, and so I treat the idea of, as Dr. Meldrum would term them, "relic hominoids." That's just a scientifically literate expression that he advocates, and which others have used in various forms. "Relic hominoids" sometimes has had been. Uh, termed in decades past, but again, relict hominoid, essentially describing a hominoid, a human-like anthropoid ape species, and one probably the likes of which we thought would be extinct, but which somehow has persisted into the present day in small numbers. That is the idea, um, and my feeling is that the scientific approach toward this is to treat it as just, I mean, like we would treat any other kind of biological organism if they exist. And like Dr. Meldrum, I have some reservations about that. You know, on certain days of the week, I could convince myself that this is all just kind of a sociological phenomena. Somehow, we have created this living mythology of the Sasquatch, of the ape man, of the you know the hybrid creature, the the chimera, you know, what have you. But uh, on those days where I'm sitting there and I'm reading Dr. Meldrum's work and I'm you know analyzing the Patterson-Gimlin footage from 1967 there at Bluff Creek, California. You know, on a good day, I look at all of that and I say, it really does seem that the more parsimonious explanation, as uh, my good friend uh, Matt Pruitt would term it, is that, however incredible it may seem, there is perhaps a human-like, unrecognized biological species right here in our midst that has somehow managed to evade science. And I think that there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. But again, as far as the confusing element, Yes, people would say, well, you're interested in UFOs. Do you see a connection between these two? Often I'm asked, do you think that there is some sort of overarching phenomena that connects all these things? And I'm like, well, if there is, it's consciousness. And it's just the human perception component related to all of this. But no, I don't I don't see any connection between the idea of the relic tominoid, if they exist, and UAP, whatever that may be.
1: Sure. He made a very good point, I believe, in the first part of your interview with him um, on Sasquatch Tracks, that he told a story of, of a team of trackers who were tracking bears who'd come down from British Columbia into, uh, I guess, wa- guess Washington State um, and into the, the forests there. And they knew they were there. There'd been countless reports. And, uh, uh, you know, I think he sent people into the field, uh, an entire team of them, for five years i believe he said before they actually spotted the bear um that we we knew they were there we knew they were there we'd kind of you know effectively seen them come over the border And it took five years for experienced trackers five years to to find the bears so is it possible that something can be existing there under very little scrutiny really obviously a lot of people are interested in it but how many people are camped out in the field 365 days a year very few if any So could it exist? It, It certainly could. However, to the flip side of that, which which is kind of posed maybe to you as a question, is while in that explanation that will explain how maybe there can be some of these hominoids, these creatures of any description who may exist in our world within your country, right under our noses. But could there be? Could there truly be a possibility that? Bigfoot, Sasquatch, within the continental United States and, and Canada, but also the Yeti in the Himalayas, the Armasti, the Orang Pendek, all these other variations—his his Bigfoot's cousins, so to speak—could they really all of that divergent evolution, every arm of that, could it all exist without having yet been discovered? Um, would it would it not seem that? one of them would have been discovered by now.
0: One should have been discovered by now. I mean, yeah, again, that's the great issue right there. And and the very reason why uh, many modern researchers are less inclined, this is interesting. It didn't always quite end up, you know, it, it hadn't always been this way. But I think many modern researchers are essentially convinced that there could be something to Sasquatch. There are just an awful lot of reports, and however unlikely that may seem, again either a lot of people are liars and hallucinate uh, you know hallucinators or there is something to it that the yeti and on the other hand maybe not so much that's the general consensus i get from people these days which is interesting because i think that early you know maybe during the second world war and immediately afterward uh, there was a lot of coverage of the so-called abominable snowman coming out of the eastern world And in those remote inaccessible reaches of the Himalayas, right? And in Nepal and and surrounding border states, uh, it would seem very likely that something could exist there, but not in North America. And it's funny how, again, it seems to have flipped. And that's what I mean in the sense that it wasn't always that way. At one time, it seemed very likely there might be a Yeti, but then the Daily Mail funds a expedition and I think it was maybe 1955, four or five, and they spend one million dollars, you know, sending a group of scientists and journalists up there to look for the thing, and come back empty-handed. And over time, we start to say maybe, maybe there's not as much over there. There, but of all places, you know, that in North America we would have a creature like this. And and that's an interesting thing which the skeptic in me has often wondered it, uh, you know, wondered about the idea of a human-like creature existing in 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 the Himalayas, you know, a Yeti. It seems so likely at one point, and now many dismiss it. Now I'm not so quick to dismiss it, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But, but the idea that suddenly we have this corollary appear in North America, and many Yeti researchers, the likes of Tom Slick, uh, you know, the, actually he was a philanthropist, you know, Texas oil tycoon. He co-founded a number of organizations uh, in in research and development uh, groups, like the Science of Mind Foundation. Things along those lines, tragically killed in a um, plane accident, but uh, had funded a Yeti expedition and also began funding Bigfoot research with his main guy, Peter Byrne. Peter in his 90s. I spoke to Peter, of course, as our second episode of Sasquatch Tracks. But, you know, it's interesting to me that all of a sudden it becomes America that is the focus. And many would say, again, that all was born out of a hoax in 1958. You know, Bluff Creek, Jerry Crew, they didn't come out and say it was a hoax right from the outset, that didn't come out. Well, people knew about it. there had even been people who had written about it throughout the 70s and 80s. But the Crew family comes out in 2002 after Ray Wallace, I'm sorry, not Jerry Crew. Jerry Crew was the foreman who found the footprint, Ray Wallace and his family. When Ray Wallace had passed away in 2002, his family came out and said, our dad was Bigfoot. And so much of the press kind of jumps on it and says, see, this whole idea, the reason it seems unlikely that there could be such a thing in North America is because There is no such thing. This was all a hoax. What many people fail to understand though, is that again, Ray Wallace and his brothers and others there at the construction sites in Bluff Creek were no doubt aware, as others were, of the indigenous traditions involving so-called giants. In fact, the newspapers from that period tell such stories and even quote Ray Wallace talking about those ideas. So he had an existing knowledge of the myths and the folklore. And what's interesting to me is that, again, it seems as though these ideas spring out of nowhere and just all of a sudden kind of come to in in, into consciousness. They were there all along. But as Dr. the late Dr. John Bendernagel points out about them, these ideas, even though they have been in our midst, and people have a degree of awareness of them, many perceive them as being myths or what have you, they are known, but they are scientifically premature. And again, he's Basically, riffing on the ideas put forward by Thomas Kuhn, philosopher of science, who said that, you know, again, there are stages of progression that an idea goes through observation, but basically people aren't interested or they don't really pay much attention to it. Gradually, people become more and more aware and begin to realize that, well, there may be something there, but I'm still not sure that this isn't just mythology. And then with time, science applied toward it and persistence may sometimes actually establish something that was observed and maybe thought of as myth as being an actual scientific reality. And Bennett contention was, yeah, these things, even though we don't have that specimen, and like you say, there should be one, his contention is that this is a scientifically premature idea, which perhaps like UFOs, we are on the cusp of beginning to understand but again, it is a problem like you say that, well, if these things have existed throughout time, if they exist today and they're biological organisms, they would have had to have been here for a long time. And throughout time, they don't just come into existence in the 1950s or 60s. So how could we not have had a, you know, an actual specimen? Now, what's interesting is I'm involved in a historical research project right now, a writing project as well, which looks throughout time based on that premise. Well. What kinds of evidence for the purported relic tominoid can be found in the historic record? And again, you're gonna have immediate limitations in North America because many of the indigenous cultures, indigenous Americans, they have language, but they may not have had written language nor do they keep written records that go back prior to Colombian contact. But if they, the creatures, arrive in North America in a way, a fashion similar to the first arrivals in North America, you know, the first humans in other words, then they probably would have followed similar migratory patterns coming across Beringia. And so that would seem to suggest that somewhere in the old world, you're likely to find these things too. And yet again, that brings us back to the Yeti. And so biologically in terms of um, migrational routes that they might've taken, and in terms of analysis throughout the history of the subject, I think that there's a whole lot of groundwork that needs to be done, which we're only really beginning to do and certain new technologies like, for instance, library science, digitization of newspaper archives, um, ease of access to old, obscure manuscripts and books—it's helping researchers like me find that indeed there's a much richer and deeper history of purported observations of these things throughout time. Which, nonetheless, even though it doesn't give us a sample, it doesn't give us that that you know holy grail like you're talking about. It does support the idea that there is a historic record that accounts for the existence of these things. So. That to me is where we are with this, but we haven't found a specimen and it doesn't exist for real, you know, until we have that specimen. Question is, will we ever find one? It's interesting to me that we have similarity between, for instance, what the Sherpa in Tibet might talk about Uh, versus, you know, what you might have a Halcomelum tribe in the Pacific Northwest of North America describe. You have similarities in that tradition. Now the folklorist would say, of course there are similarities because this is mythology. But I wonder sometimes about the deeper mystery of, you know, the similarities between different folkloric beliefs in various parts of the world. There was an article written shortly after Sanderson published um, Abominable Snowman back in 61, And uh, this appeared probably, it may have been in the Journal of American Folklore, but it was a folklorist saying that they found Sanderson's conclusions kind of weird. You know, the idea that he thinks these creatures are all around the world. The folklorist said, we recognize these things clearly as being items of folklore. And here's why, because again, in the Yeti tradition, you have a creature that the locals say its feet are turned backwards. Uh, You know, you have the same thing about various different traditions, about wild men in parts of South America. And again, they go down the list of all the different kinds of iterations of folkloric tropes that appear in relation to the belief in these creatures. And so again, I have to acknowledge that, okay, sure, you know, the the folklorist has a point there. But on the other hand, as archeologist Myra Shackley had said back in the 1980s, she wrote a wonderful book about this before she kind of got out of it uh, and then went more into anthropology and then later became an Anglican priest. But Amira Shackley had said, again, myths and folklore don't leave footprints in the ground that can be measured and that can be cast. And so her belief was that obviously we have to understand and recognize the folkloric aspect of this when indigenous cultures are looking at this idea. But we need to be able to entertain the idea that those traditional beliefs may stem from something rooted in reality that is little understood. If anything, speaking with so many scientists who look at the possible physical reality of something like Sasquatch, especially Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, of course. Now, you know, it would be fair to say that some might also say that he is so invested in the subject that, you know, he may be an expert on the paleoanthropological and the anatomical science as it relates to this, but but he also is going to be um, more uh, biased toward belief again, I've heard people say things like that. Meldrum, at the very end of our interview, you know, he he basically concludes saying, you know, I still have some reservations about this, and I think that they are warranted. And so uh, that was one of my favorite things about the discussion with him, you know, that after laying out the case for why he thinks there's a physical reality, but I still have some reservations, (laughs) you know.
1: Uh, So I think it's healthy, too. Well, yeah. I think any
0: scientist
1: shouldn't have a closed book approach to anything.
0: Right. And again, that's why I call myself a hopeful skeptic or a open minded skeptic. You know, I mean, I always fundamentally approach these topics with skepticism. And so uh, with regard to Sasquatch, again, I cannot say, well, I think they're out there. Again, that is a belief oriented perspective. But what I would say is that having spoken with a number of scientists and also avocationalists, you know, citizen scientists, who get out there and who work in the field, so to speak, on the weekends, many of them are very, very well trained and have often self-educated themselves and have become very, very adept at the collection of information, the collection of uh, you know, not only eyewitness testimony, but also collection of data and maybe even samples from the field. Again, some of these uh, researchers are fantastic at what they do. Matt Pruitt, who I mentioned earlier, being one of those and uh, another example uh, that I would have to, we haven't actually aired this episode yet, but another example in a forthcoming episode that we'll be doing, uh, but Shelley Covington, Montana is a guest that we have spoken with and we will be airing that episode soon. And yet again, avocationalist self-taught, but she has gone through the gamut, I mean, of learning tracking, learning forensic applications to the collection of material evidence in the field, I mean, she's very, very impressive in terms of the skill set that she's built for herself. So she and Matt Pruitt and others like that, you know, and then also the scientists or people who are academic, you know, they do most of their work in the laboratory or at the university, but nonetheless studying this. The big takeaway from learning from these people and learning about their experiences has been, man, you know, there is a stronger case for the physical reality of these creatures than just reading books and just watching television shows would have you think you know and so what i ask people to do is again maintain that skepticism like you say it's healthy but be open minded enough to hear what a professional like Meldrum you know or someone along those lines see what they have to say before you draw your conclusions that's i think important too so a number of years ago I uh, was probably in my early 20s at the time, probably still in college, and uh, I was uh, joined, I had just joined a organization, uh, which was a local paranormal investigative group, which was headed by Joshua P. Warren. Some may know his name. Joshua P. Warren, of course, is probably best known for television that he's done and things like this. He used to live here in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, he had been intimately involved in research into what's known as the Brown Mountain Light Phenomena. Now the Brown Mountain Lights are a purported ghost light or earthlight light phenomena that occurs very close to Asheville where I live. I could drive about an hour east and I could be there. And uh, my friends Seth Breedlove and Shannon LeGros did a wonderful uh, episode of their docuseries on the trail of UFOs, uh, which features me there at Brown Mountain talking about that phenomena for those who may want to uh, observe. That's a, definitely a good primer on the subject. And so uh, I began working with Joshua because, you know, he and his group would go down there at least once a year, more than once a year often, and they would do, you know, research. And I wanted to kind of have, you know, the experience of being able to go down there to Brown Mountain and see what was going on. But of course, we struck up a friendship and remained friends over the years and still are, even though he lives in another part of the country now. And so one night we were all over at his house. And after our meetings, we would often just kind of hang out and stay up way too late and occasionally enjoy some spirits, not of the haunted variety, mind you, but, uh, you know, we would stay up and we would talk about all the things that we enjoyed. And on the night in question, he had been talking with another of our members, a guy named Robert, and telling this story to Robert about a family member of his who appeared in a photograph, uh, but his face was distorted, and they were unable to see this guy, his name was Claude, in this photograph. And, um... Then three or four days later, the guy vanishes and was never seen again. An actual legitimate missing person case. And I'm overhearing this from a few feet away, and I said, "Who Who is that in your family? He says, This was a guy named Claude Calloway. And I said, I have a weird, very similar story in my family, and some of my family members also have the last name Calloway. And so I said, you're kidding. I mean, that sounds almost like the same story my family tells. So uh, I shared that with my father, who is, among other things, a language scholar and also a, a you know, classical scholar. But he also is a amateur geologist, not geologist, genealogist. And uh, so my father heard the story and he was interested in, in the idea and decided to dig around and do some genealogical work. And lo and behold, finds out that the Claude Calloway that was being told about in this story after he talked with some of Josh's family members. It was the same. He actually was related to our family. And indeed, it turns out that Josh and I are, I think, fourth cousins. So we had a common connection. We didn't even know that when we met. Um, maybe that's just a you know, a, a, feature of living in Western North Carolina, and rural North Carolina. <laughs> but that's not even the weird part. So the story involves Cla- Claude Calloway in this photograph his face is distorted it's a weird eerie photograph and then he vanishes several days later but my father says to me who told you that story before you heard josh tell it and i said well i figured you had or aunt jewel or somebody on our family's you know side they must have told me that i mean i wouldn't have known about the connection had i not recognized the details And then asked him, you know, what was Claude's last name, Calloway? Oh, wow, we have Calloways in our family, too. We must be connected and, you know, related and what have you. And I said, I'm sure you told me the story. And Dad said, no, I had never heard it. And he said, in fact, nobody on our side of the family should have known that story. Uh, Because, again, his Calloways are from a different county, and we never had any interactions with him. So he said, "I I sure never told you that. I don't know anyone on our side of the family who would have known that that could have told you that story. And so the big mystery for me, <laughs> yeah, and so I've always been like, so how did I know the story to begin with that I would recognize I it when Josh told us,
1: sure. which
0: yeah. was later independently verified by my father through genealogy, and it actually shows that our families are indeed related. We've never been able to figure that out. And so, I mean, I've I've entertained everything from, I mean, again, if I were to get really speculative, I'm like, could it be some sort of a weird, like, cultural memory, a transmission of memory from a different part of the family? you know, which, again, is extraordinary and sounds very implausible. On the other side of things, there is what is known psychologically, again, this going back to my time in college, when I was studying psychology, hindsight bias, you know, they say hindsight is 2020. And hindsight bias essentially is how psychologists often will try to explain things like synchronicities and coincidences, serendipity, deja vu, your your brain is thinking that it is seeing something that is seen before, but actually, it's a backward firing of what you know what have you so hindsight bias is the expression so i've wondered i mean maybe i had had not heard the story and merely was compelled by what i heard him tell and mistook that i knew the story that would be the psychological explanation but i'm going to tell you again to me i mean i i felt like i know that i knew that story and i've often thought how else would i have recognized it which led to the reality of our families indeed being related <laughs> i mean it's a it's a bizarre circumstance we've never figured that one out
1: so we're all locked away. We're all, uh, you're locked in your bunker as I'm locked in mine. What's uh, What are you working on now? What's coming up next?
0: Well, there is the relict hominoid, you know, writing in research project. Uh, you know, I've got a similar one I'm working on with UFOs trying to look back to antiquity. And again, to recognize not so much the existence of extraterrestrial flying craft in antiquity it is so much as to try and look at the human experience of seeing things in the sky that we can't explain. I mean, I think that that would be a good way that we could define a UFO. And in fact, going back to the 1960s with the publication of his wonderful book, uh, again, Jacques Vallée's first book on UFOs, in fact, Anatomy of a Phenomenon, he had said we can't put a UFO under a microscope, we can't study it in a laboratory, but what we can study and apply science to is the UFO report. And so I'm trying to essentially apply that same uh, approach in the uh, context of historical studies you know his, history is not considered a science per se although there are historical sciences but i love the idea of applying a scientific methodological approach to historical inquiry uh, i think that it's much needed in the field of the anomalous and so there's another project with ufo's looking at that and then of course always podcasts and things although in early 2021 there'll be another big announcement I've got a big project I'm working on. Can't say too much about it right now, but uh, a couple of cohorts and I, we're working on some very, very big things. And I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about at another time can always follow me at MicahHanks.com. I'm on Twitter at Micah Hanks. You can find me everywhere. Just look for my name. Uh, if you look for Micah Hanks online, you're generally going to find me. And again, people are welcome to reach out. I always like to hear from people. I try to answer as many emails as I can. I don't get to, uh, back to all of them, <laughs> nor do I get to them as quickly as I often should, but I try and uh, I'm happy to hear from people.
1: So, Micah, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day to come and speak with us. It's fascinating, as always, to hear your uh, your weird and wonderful, marvelous stories, uh, to hear about where your work's taking you next. Uh, so, yeah, it's been an absolute joy to speak with you. So, yeah, thank you so much.
0: The pleasure is mine. I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Peer Beyond the Veil has been written and presented by myself, Mark Watson, as part of the Fearscape Media Network. Music and soundtracks are credited and licensed to Purple Planet and to Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. All rights are reserved by our parent company, MLW Publishing. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash peerbeyondtheveil or on Twitter at peerbeyondtheveil or at peerbeyond2020. Please click the like and subscribe buttons when you see them, most importantly wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us to attract the attention we need to keep the show going, to get the guests that you all want to hear from, and to help more and more people.